Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with sports scientist and researcher at the Geelong Cats and Deakin University, Jackie Tran. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's pretty simple. So the Nordboard is a fast and accurate way to measure hamstring strength. So as you know, practitioners can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury. What they can do something about is the athlete's strength. So that's where the Nordboard comes into play giving you real-time hamstring strength readings to enhance training, monitoring, and rehabilitation. It isn't going to make your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you, the practitioner, can make the right decision at the right time. The Nordboard is now available, so if you're interested in finding out a little bit more, you can email info at valdperformance.com or visiting valdperformance.com. The Nordboard is already in use by almost half the Premier League and dozens of other elite teams worldwide. So the Nordboard hamstring testing system is the new standard for high performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Train With Push, creators of the Push Band. So the Push Band is the first scientifically validated uh, wearable device to provide objective insights into your performance in the gym. So using accelerometers and a gyroscope, the push band is able to use bar speed to regulate load and volume based on your ability in the gym on any given day. So you can use the push band to quickly establish uh, 1RMs with some maximal load so you can plan with confidence. So the push band portal also allows you to create programs before entering the gym uh, to make change on the fly depending on how you are performing on that given day. So you can customize everything from target velocity ranges to differentiating velocities for warm-up and creating working sets and supersets uh, for yourself or your athletes. So if you do want to know more about Train With Push and the Push Band, get yourself over to trainwithpush.com. They also have got a great blog, so you can catch up with some guest bloggers such as Mladen Ivanovic and Dan Baker. So be sure to check them out at trainwithpush.com. Thanks for tuning in to episode 74 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today, really excited to get Jackie Tran on. Uh, it's someone I've been stalking, as I mentioned the episode, for quite some time. So it was great to get her on uh, early in the morning for me, um, late in the evening for her. So I just want to thank Jackie for giving up her time. So if you don't know who Jackie is or want to find more out about her, just go to her website, jackietran.com. So that's J-A-C-Q-U-I-E-T-R-A-N.com. Uh, and you'll find a lot more about her, whether it's her research or just her interests and most importantly, her sketching, which is absolutely incredible. So keep this, interview, keep this uh, intro nice and short. Uh, hope you enjoy the chat with Jackie. Uh, I'm sure you will. And just make sure you check out all the other resources um, that I mentioned in the episode. So like I mentioned, uh, Jackie's website, make sure you check that out. So enjoy and I'll speak to you soon. Hi, 
Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Jackie Tran on the phone. So just before I get Jackie in to give us a little bit of introduction, just want to thank her for her time uh, and welcome to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Jackie. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure. So do you, like I mentioned, do you want to just give people a, a little bit of an introduction to who you are uh, and your background and what you're currently doing? Yeah, sure. So um, I am uh, definitely a generalist as far as sports scientists go. I've, I've um, bounced around a few different disciplines, but uh, over the last few years, I've been focusing my research on um, applied physiology, and uh, it has focused on rowing training and performance. Um, but my current role is, uh, while it's still in research, it's in a completely different context again. Um, I'm a research fellow at Deakin University and also working in conjunction with the Geelong Cats Football Club, um, uh, which is an elite Australian football team. Um, so my role is uh, is is very varied, very multidisciplinary, and I get to draw on um, all the different bits of knowledge I've accumulated over the time and um, and networks that I've developed over the time in physiology, biomechanics, um, elite sport, and 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 in analytics and applied statistics as well. So uh, there's a there's a whole range of things that I do, but mostly it is about um, elite sports performance and applying scientific science techniques to that so uh pretty broad but um but uh, to me it all makes sense in my head so hopefully it makes sense <laughs> to someone else too so, so the rowing the rowing stuff is that something that's a passion of yours or is that just something that's kind of fallen your way yeah, I mean, at the time, um, it was uh, it was uh, just a great opportunity that came across um, my desk. Uh, so I did my honours with Paul Gaston back in 2000 and, uh, 2009, a little while ago, and that was a biomechanics-focused um, honours project. Uh, then I took a year off after that, but Paul contacted me in contact and told me about a, uh, a joint, um, jointly supported PhD opportunity with Rowing Australia, um, the Australian Institute of Sport and Deakin. And I decided to apply for that uh, role because of the opportunity it would give me to work with uh, some of the best of the best. And um, my external supervisor was Tony Rice, who is the um, National Sports Science Coordinator for Rowing Australia. So I hadn't had any connection at that point to the Australian Institute of Sport and I wanted to continue working with Paul as well. So it just seemed a really good fit. Um, at the time, I didn't know anything about rowing, actually, so I just threw myself in the deep end, um, quite literally, and uh, and it was uh, a great learning experience, and I, I really developed a passion for, for rowing, but I, it didn't start off that way, so um, it was a great challenge for me to come into a sport where I uh, didn't have any prior experience and then have to uh, learn as I go, but um, but I think it, it gave me, um, I think it gave me an advantage in some ways because I was uh, in, uh, fresh eyes and I was a bit of an outside observer to begin with. So I asked a lot of naive questions, but I think that was a, a good way to start a research project is without any preconceived ideas about the sport. So, um, so yeah, my, my uh, four years um, studying as a PhD student was really heavily focused on rowing, but uh, have gone in a slightly different direction now just as, um, as job opportunities have gone, but, um, but still very, very interested in uh, rowing and, and pursuing that. So hopefully uh, I can continue to apply my trade in rowing at some point down the line. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, I mean, it's is is quite a daunting thing for people, you know, getting approached to work in a different sport. They've never been... Um never been involved in the past. Do you just want to talk to us about the kind of process that you went through to actually first learn about, not just learn about the sport and, and maybe, you know, watch guys training and, and competing, but really get into the nitty gritty of the sport to actually fully yeah. understand it. Do you just want to talk to us about that process that you went through? Yeah, sure. Look, um, I think that um, uh, one of the things that 
is a very simple thing to do um, is to, for me, it was to go out and try the sport and to get a physical uh, sensation of what the sport is like because I had never rowed before. Uh, so that for me was a new experience, um, just to even get a feeling just as a, a lay person, I suppose, or a, uh, a newcomer to the sport. Um, I guess I also uh, took on board the advice of a few people around me um, and from uh, from conference presentations that I heard, keynote presentations. And uh, one of the key things I remember Tim Gabbett mentioning it uh, at one of his many presentations was that the best that he'd learned about sports science had come from standing next to a coach during a training session, observing them, asking questions, uh, being unafraid to ask those naive questions. Uh, you know, why did you choose to do it that way? Or why have you structured in, in such a way? Uh, and so I really took that to heart and uh, and really pushed for um, opportunities to do that. So, uh, and my supervisors were very supportive of that as well, which, which was... Uh, was critical to it being effective. And so, uh, you know, Tony got me out on the water with uh, some of the national coaches and I was able to sit and observe training, uh, ask them questions, and uh, and I learned a lot that way. Uh, and uh, and I tried my hand at rowing. It wasn't very effective. I ended up on the wrong side of the river um, and had to be uh, somewhat rescued by the um, the club captain. But, uh, but, you know, I tried it and I got, the, got a feel for it and understood how technically it is. Um, and so I, I guess I can say I have that firsthand experience. But I guess ultimately, um, one of Paul's um, pieces of advice to me when I was early on in my studies uh, has really stuck with me, which is that if you're a good scientist, it really doesn't matter what sport you go to, uh, mm -hmm. because it all ultimately begins with uh, understanding the needs and the demands of that particular sport. But the science, um, ultimately, the scientific method, and the scientific approach uh, should be applicable across sports if you if you do that needs analysis up front. So um, so I really wasn't daunted um, in in a funny funny way. I was really excited by the challenge to uh, throw myself into a completely new environment. Mm -hmm. Cool. So one thing I um, one thing I found so so basically just to take that back a bit. Not with with guests. I'll do a little bit of stalking online. Which is, all, which, is, yeah. which is always fun, uh, going through people's Twitter accounts and personal personal websites and things. Um, sure. So one thing that I came across uh, with yourself was um, was interest in kind of analytics and, and predictive modeling. So that's kind of a um, very, very broad term. Do you just want to give us a little bit of information on, firstly, the the kind of predictive modeling that you were interested in and what were you what basically what you were trying to to predict with with the work that you were doing and the thing that you're interested in yeah sure i mean look to be to be honest the um the predictive modeling that i had developed an interest in early on in my phd we never we never got there with my phd and uh and it's still you know something that um that were that I'm working towards, and I think largely because as I di delved myself into this area, was um, was uh, discovering that as much as um, many sports want to use this kind of approach to um, draw deeper insights uh, and be able to potentially forecast events um, from their data. Uh, many environments, different environments, different settings, organisations need to get the basics of their data management right and data collection right. Um, and so I've been spending, I would say, uh, you know, a lot of the last few years really working with um, all sorts of different individuals across different sports and organisations to to improve that, that most fundamental level of data management. 
um, before progressing to something more ambitious. Um, but for me personally, I am interested in, in using um, large data sets over over multiple years to look at team performance um, and particularly moving now more into um, interactive patterns of behaviour within teams and then between teams in invasion sports. So um, that's that's where my analytics research is heading and we've got a couple of honours students working on um, parts of projects in that kind of area. So um, I'm interested in, in dynamic uh dynamic systems that will change you know, second to second almost or, or minute to minute throughout a game depending on the on the status of uh, of you know who's winning and losing at, at different times so I'm kind of interested in, in those sorts of questions um, as far as predictive modeling goes and trying to identify patterns of uh, of team play that link more closely with success uh, or may match well against a different type of pattern um, so that we might actually use this kind of uh, uh, analytical technique not just to uh, you know for example there's there's some great examples of uh, analytics in talent development and talent identification um, there's there's ongoing work in you know, injury uh, prevention and risk management uh, I'm interested in using analytics from a tactical standpoint so how can we use this information to make strategic decisions and help give more objective information to coaches when they're making um, their decisions about how to uh, structure their, their team play? Mm-hmm. Cool. So you mentioned there about the, the kind of basics of data collection. There's, for me, there's a, a big disconnect between kind of using statistical methods in, in like a, a master's or an undergrad to, you know, to, to get through a, um, an assignment but actually using that on them techniques in the field. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about what you mean by the basics of data collection and, and what how you're advising people in in using them big data sets? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I think even it begins with small data, let alone big data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, sometimes big data is it can be easier to deal with because big data is typically collected using uh, sensors or um, teams of, uh, of, of data analysts who are bringing data together. So there is a sort of inherent structure to it. Already. Uh, but there is a lot of um, small data that we use in, in sport that isn't nece- necessarily structured very well or even um, collected in a systematic and a consistent, reliable way. So um, some of the is that uh, some of the advice that I guess I, I share with um, the people that work with me um, are around having a, a real clarity around the processes of collecting the data. Um, so having you know, standard operating procedures for data collection, having standard operating procedures for data cleaning to make sure that uh, the same process is followed um, even if someone happens to be on leave or um, someone happens to move organisations or change sports or, or change careers. Um, you know, we have a lot of um, uh, we have a lot of issues with data uh, being kept in a consistent manner, not because there isn't uh, the database. Um, to to store it or uh, you know servers that are big enough. That's typically not the problem that I've encountered in the sports that I've worked with. The problem is usually because there is a a, a large throughput of staff, um, sometimes a large uh, quite a, quite a rapid turnover of staff. Um, processes change, 
and they're not documented. And so when one person leaves, their processes go with them and it's not always very clear how, how they got from A to B to C. So uh, sometimes it's just the real basics of writing everything down, uh, having an instructional manual and following the same procedures um, every time you, you go through a reproduced process. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of teaching that kind of basic stuff. When I, when I say basic, I really do mean basic. Um, <laughs> And also understanding things like um, data types, you know, understanding the difference between continuous and discrete data or, you know, um, ordinal and interval data and ratio data. And um, these are things that's, that can seem really dry to sports science and exercise science students. Um, you know, a lot of times they come into this degree, this kind of degree, not to, not to uh, you know, become math whizzes. And that's not my intention either to, to make make them into math wizards, but um, some appreciation for the um, the mathematical logic is really important to work with data well and to use it well for the purposes of actually changing behavior and changing performance. Mm-hmm. How, how much of an influence is this this kind of, um, I, don't know what to, I don't know what to call it, um, kind of fashion almost about about data? How is it? How is? How do you think it's kind of affecting the not just the the kind of traditional what you might class as sports scientist, but the the kind of even the coach. How much you know? How much upskilling are the are the coaches needing in in kind of 2016 in this <laughs> what I call fashion of collecting lots of data? Um, are you yep. finding that there's there's the, the the gap is kind of growing, or do do you think that? we're doing as, as as scientists doing a good job of kind of keeping everyone in that in that sink if that makes any sort of sense yeah no it does um i think there is there's always upskilling to to be done i think it kind of feels like um you know maybe my observations from five, six, seven years ago when um, I started to notice that there were more uh, senior or elite level coaches who actually had gone and uh, and pursued sport science um, studies themselves um, so that they could have they could feel informed enough to have those discussions with the sports scientists that they um, that they worked with uh, rather than just taking it taking taking them on their word they actually could be informed enough to have real um, debates and discussions about different sports science approaches and I think that's where we're at now with um, using data uh, to inform coaching practice is that there are coaches out there who have a good understanding of math and others who do need to um, to upskill but it's not just math uh, I suppose it's also I guess a data literacy um, and and I think there is some some way to go but certainly some of the coaches I've worked with have been great and picked it up really quickly some have already come I guess ready-made with those skill sets maybe from um, other uh, other careers that they've had throughout their lives um, and and some you know want to use this kind of technique but don't know where to start and they they don't have a math background or a science background or a data background um, and they know that they've got some work to do to understand this but uh, but I see it as being a matter of time um, and I think it's overall the the fashion or the trend of um, you know utilizing statistics and utilizing data more um, more intelligently in sport I think all it's a positive thing because um, it means that more people are asking questions of the available information rather than, uh, okay, you're the analyst or you're the sports scientist. You tell me what you think. Uh, this way we can have more eyes on it asking more questions. Uh, and, and I think that ultimately means we hopefully get to, to better answers. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously a very daunting thing for a, for a coach to 
to be kind of educated in that way because I'm, I'm guessing that when these coaches, you know, decided to be a coach at 30, 35, 40, whatever it, whatever it was, they probably didn't realize that somebody would be telling them about um, statistics and maths and things like that. But what what is the process that you go through to kind of introduce them and maybe educate them? Because obviously it's not, a, it's not a, an easy thing to be doing. Yeah, you know, I think it comes back to something that gets hammered into you when you're a researcher. And at the time you think it's, it's pretty uh, cliche, but it really does apply um, in terms of teaching uh, or, or engaging people in content, which might be a bit daunting uh, to begin with. So, you know, in research, we get told all the time, what's the question? What's the question? What's the question? What's the question that you're asking? And so if you focus it around the problem that's trying to, to be, um, that a coach is trying to solve, then their engagement comes along with that. But if you come at it from a perspective of, okay, we're going to sit down for an hour and we're going to talk about data, well, you'll see their eyes glaze over <laughs> in a millisecond. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's, hey, you know, I know that you're having, um, you know, you're having some con- concerns about how, uh, you know, this particular structure may or may not be working. Let's look at some information that might help us answer that question, whether or not it's working. Um, and then if it's a problem that they're solving, then uh, I guess it, it, it may still be daunting, but they can push through it because they're looking um, for a solution to their to their their coaching problem, not their math problem. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Cool. So just another one that um, that came up in the in the stalking session, which didn't take much stalking, to be honest. Um, <laughs> was the uh, was the um, the inter- your interest in understanding training load, and we we've discussed it a little bit with regards to your kind of um, your rowing. Uh, your own stuff but you just want to talk to us a little bit about firstly why that that interest exists and how we as scientists coaches whatever it may be um, go about introducing a um, a method of of analyzing training load and and maybe the different caveats um, that exist in that in that question yep sure yeah I guess um, to answer the first part of the question uh, where my interest comes from um, I guess it, what it, where it really stems from is the fact that that's the major stimulus that we have. That's the major way that we affect change in athletes uh, and um, and sti- and try to stimulate adaptations and try to ultimately improve performance. So uh, to me, it seems like um, uh, a logical first point for a, a young sports scientist to focus on is the is the big rock of how we uh, manage training, how we prescribe it, how we adjust it. Uh, and and how we can get a picture of whether what they've done matches what we thought that they would do. Um, and I think that's uh, in some sports can be relatively straightforward. I, I will say with that with that uh, bit of a disclaimer there or a bit of an out clause. Um, you know, I think that in the team sport setting or in the you know in the football setting where I am now, it's it's incredibly difficult because you have such a range of um, demands on the body. So you have locomotor demands, then you have, uh, you know, central cardiovascular demands, you have neurological demands, neurophysiological demands, um, you have perceptual and psychological demands, and they're all, um, they all have their different ways of being captured. Um, but to integrate that into one understanding of how demanding was training today or this week is a really, really difficult thing. Whereas in other sports, it's slightly easier. For example, in a, a more standardized environment like swimming. Um, you know, you don't capture everything by capturing 
distance and speed and, um, you know, internal measures that you might capture, um, you know, lactates, heart rate, um, whatnot. You don't get, it's, it's not quite as, uh, it's not straightforward. It's not completely simple, but it is simpler than something like football where you've, you've got um, a lot of different factors uh, that can um, affect training and uh, not be represented well in the training load units uh, sometimes or training load measures that you might select. So, um, so I think that's, that's, I guess that the challenge of that is attractive to me and that it is such a fundamental part of athlete management. Um, so those two things have really fueled my interest in the area. Um, and I guess, you know, in terms of, um, recommendations, I guess I'm no closer to it than anyone else, <laughs> uh, in terms of, uh, advising, what the best way to uh, monitor load would be. Um, but again, I guess it starts from really identifying what are the demands of the sport and being as open-minded about that as possible, um, not thinking about let's just capture the the physiological load or let's just capture how far they've run. Um, that might be a starting point, but I think the best load monitoring systems that I've seen have been multifaceted, um, have incorporated multiple measures and have um, – really brought the athletes and the coaches along with the purpose of doing that and the value of doing that. Um, I've seen load monitoring systems implemented where there are five, six, seven measures taken of training, but that hasn't necessarily been communicated well to um, athletes and coaches. And then it just seems like an exercise in recording information. Um, and so I think there's there's this sort of there's two components to, to an effective load monitoring system and it's, it's having um, – multifaceted measures that capture unique information uh, from each other and also um, having the athletes and coaches engaged in that so they can actually provide information as necessary but also query it and provide additional information, contextual information that might help to decide, okay, today was a hard session uh, and the number looks a little bit different but, you know, the athletes and the coaches have important information to tell us as well about whether or not that was a demanding session or not. So trying to integrate that objective, subjective, external, internal, it's very complex, but at the same time, I think that's really the way that we have to go if we want to monitor load well. Um, uh, but it probably starts from a simple base and then you you, you build from there step by step. Do, do you think that's a, there's a little bit of a missing link there that, that people forget about that input from, from coaches, from technical coaches? Or is that something that you think is done well with it, with regards to letting them have feedback on this in this process? Mm, I guess um, maybe it depends on the sport. Uh, okay. uh, I haven't worked personally in cricket, for example, but from um, colleagues and friends who who have worked in cricket, um, the the technical coaching side of it uh, feeds um, feeds into the load monitoring because. It's about, you know, number of balls faced, the number of balls bowled and, uh, and okay, today we were doing, um, you know, lots of speed work in terms of the bowling or today we were doing more placement and accuracy and we're backing off on the speed. So the, the coaches feed into that process of understanding load. Um, but I think in other sports, yeah, there's a, there's a huge opportunity there to, um, to better understand demands placed on athletes by involving the coaches in that process and not making it, uh, you know, this is just the fitness department's job to monitor yeah. load. Actually, it's everyone's job. It's the athletes, it's the coaches, it's the sports scientists and the fitness staff and the medical staff. And, uh, and it's, it's everyone's responsibility. So, um, I think that there, there's, there are opportunities to improve, um, in that respect for sure. Mm -hmm. So, so for someone coming into a, a new role or, or their first role, what would 
which I think is probably um, important for the guys that have been around for a, a number of years as well. But what what would be the the kind of first part of call with with regards to setting up a system to understand training load? You know, what's what's the first thing that you would suggest is sit down and do what? Um, you know, the first thing that I would do is is see what's been done before, okay. um, and uh, I think if if it's your your first effort at establishing a system, uh, even if you have your own ideas about what the perfect system might be in a particular sport, um, so much of it is about shaping behaviour and having people engaged in the process. So I think it's important to firstly assess what's what has been done, what has worked, and also what hasn't worked and why, because um, that may be revealing about the ways that you you might choose to deliver future changes. Um, you know, I can think of uh, some great examples from um, water polo and and um, uh, from the Australian water polo program, particularly the women's program, um, at where I remember hearing a talk from Andrea Mosler, who is now at Aspire Academy, but uh, spent a long time with the women's water polo team um, at the AIS. And, uh, you know, I think we're going back now probably it's, 10, maybe 15 years, where they started off with really simplistic load monitoring. It was, you know, how many hours of training did you do today? And don't tell me anything else. I just want that basic information, you know, uh, because what had come before that was very little. Um, And then from there, Andrea built on that and they saw the value of recording, okay, uh, you know, player X has done 15 hours this week and player Y has done 20. So, you know, player Y has done 25% more than player X and what what implications does that have for recovery, for injury risk and so forth. And then in that process of having a very simple load monitoring system, um, then the coaches and the athletes started to ask questions and go, oh, well, yeah, she did 20, but, you know, it was 20 easy hours and I did 15 hard hours. So how do you represent that? And then you start to get those questions and then you can build and say, okay, well, yeah, training hours only captures an aspect of volume. Now we need an intensity measure. So how about let's measure some intensity. These are some methods that we can do that. So I think it's about chaining it and starting from where you're at rather than um, trying to implement, uh, you know, the ideal system from from day dot. Um, I think every system can improve a little bit, but it's about having incremental uh, change and um bringing your athletes and your coaches along uh, that journey with you. Very interesting. So I just want to bring the um, one of the points I had towards the end uh, forward just because um, firstly it's interesting to me, um, sure. which, is, which is the sketching side of things. So if anyone hasn't seen uh, your sketches, they're, they're unbelievable. But do, do you want to just talk to us about firstly – you know, why you would, um, why you do them and, um, you know, what, what does it give to you and what do you feel it gives to people that are reading them? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I have to say that I've, I still continue to be surprised at the, um, the impact and the reach of my sketch notes <laughs> because, um, when I started doing them, they really weren't for anyone else. They were for me and to enhance my own understanding. Um, I realized that, you know, as, as I started to attend more conferences as a research student, I found that I was taking all these really boring notes, uh, just 
you know, line after line after line of text-based notes. And I would never go back and look at them because I didn't want to look at them. They were boring <laughs> and, you know, they were my own notes, but I didn't care to revise them. And so I felt like I was going away from these conferences, not having absorbed a lot of information. Um, and so I was trying to find a way to, to do that better. And uh, when, when I was a teenager, when I was in high school, I used mind maps a lot to help me with my writing. And so I thought I'd adapt it for um, the purposes of attending seminars, workshops and conferences. And then uh, I think one of my friends saw me doing one of these sketch notes and they said, oh, that's pretty cool. You should share that with some people. And uh, I had a blog where I, uh, I still have this blog where I write from time to time and I thought, well, why not? I'll just publish it and see what happens. And, uh, and I, yeah, like I said, I continue to be surprised that will find it engaging and find it useful for their own learning. Um, because for me, the learning comes from the actual process of doing the notes. Uh, I actually find I don't really look at my own sketch notes either, <laughs> but somehow I absorb more information just from the act of, uh, putting my virtual pen to paper and, um, and, synthesizing that information rather than, uh, you know, taking notes on my laptop or um, writing barely legible um, text <laughs> on, on a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's really where it starts from. And, uh, and and I found it to be yeah really effective for my own learning and surprisingly uh, really engaging for other people too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you mentioned it to me before we started recording, but where do you, where do you um, take these notes and, and what kind of implements do you use to, to take them? Yep, it's a it's a pretty simple setup. So I use an iPad and a stylus uh, in terms of hardware and software. I use an app called GoodNotes, um, and that's one word for anyone who wants to look that up. So they've got a free version that you can try out, and uh, and they've got a paid version as well, which has some more features. But uh, but the free version is pretty good, and I use that for a long time. And um, uh, yeah, that's essentially my process. I'll sit down at a, uh, a conference or a conference presentation or workshop. I try to uh, arrive a little bit earlier and um, write down the title of the presentation, um, do a little sketch of the speaker if possible, uh, write down their name just to make it a little bit interesting for me yeah. and, uh, and, and just find a, I guess, get myself into the right mindset because it is a very demanding um, exercise. Uh, it requires you to listen very carefully and also synthesize information while you're receiving new information uh, throughout the course of a presentation. So uh, I find I need a, a few minutes to focus myself and uh, prepare myself for the next, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Um, and then I sketch live. Uh, my um, process varies. Sometimes I will sketch live and complete the sketch pretty well um, you know, in the first 10 or 15 minutes after a presentation is finished. Uh, sometimes my perfectionism gets the better of me and I uh, spend more time afterwards. So uh, it can be double the presentation time um, where it might be an hour presentation, an hour of editing and cleaning up uh, before I actually publish it to the world. Um, but these days I try to make it as efficient as possible. Interesting. So, <laughs> excuse me. So I'm going to bring the um, the second to last point um, towards the back. So, so now, so just another thing again, back on the stalking. I'm not some some complete weirdo, um, but <laughs> but the the wearable the wearable um, kind of conversation, um, which I'd, I'd like your kind of your your knowledge and experience on. It was something that I discussed, not, not necessarily wearables, but technology was something I discussed with a guy over here who came on the podcast a few episodes ago. And people getting roped into to buying piece of technology and, and taking 
their data as as gospel and and not going through a process of okay is this this data that it's given me is this actually correct you know i'm making decisions off this um so what process firstly would you go through this kind of process that that he went through in actually making sure that it's doing what it says it's doing and if so what what does that process look like yeah uh, look i think that um you know there are a whole range of measurement properties that we we need to consider and i think we are continuing to improve uh, our processes as a as a community as a sports science community um, around understanding the measurement properties of the different measures that we we have particularly the um, you know the sensor technologies that continue to advance faster than our ability to study them um, but uh, I think there are some really good examples from how this is done in, I guess, you know, I, I hesitate to say that a little bit, but I guess higher stakes environments like the medical setting, um, where the accuracy of a measurement tool may be the difference between making a decision that, uh, you know, negatively or positively impacts someone's health um, and their and their prognosis. So uh, in those environments, um, measurement properties are, are uh you know, at the forefront of people's minds, um, how accurate is this um, blood pressure monitor? How accurate is um, the oxygen saturation measurement? Measurement, all those sorts of things. Um, those are questions we don't ask, I think, as readily in sport because it's not life or death usually, in for most of us. Um, but the concepts stay the same. So you know, uh, the different aspects of validity, uh, not just comparing to other measures that do the similar things, but comparing to whatever the true gold standard is. Uh, I guess one of the difficulties with that is that there are some things in sport which we don't have a gold standard for. And, you know, we were talking about training load before and we don't have, you know, one um, conventional known gold standard of measuring training load. So there's uh, no way for us to really have um, established criterion validity because there is no gold standard to, to compare to. But we can look at um, is it valid compared to other things that we we know measure training load, some aspect of it. Um, so validity is one, one massive part. Reliability um, always comes into it, particularly from the perspective of uh, sensor technologies where um, you'll have the manufacturing of many, many tens of thousands of devices potentially, and there could be uh, variations between devices. Um, so, you know, knowing whether there are, um, there are differences between devices or even differences between when different operators are using a device um, is important and um, can be accounted for, but sometimes we don't go through that process because it seems tedious. Uh, if we go through that process, we can actually um, identify known systematic error and eliminate that from our calculations or, or, account, or uh, I suppose, account for that error uh, so that we can improve the accuracy of the final numbers that we're using to make decisions. Um, I guess, you know, it also comes down to questions of of feasibility and burden and those are still really important questions that I think sometimes get lost in the argument about validity and reliability. Um, I think burden is is something that we always need to consider even though wearing a watch or wearing some sort of biometric sensor stitched into clothing seems uh, to be less burden than uh, than other techniques, um, adva- invasive techniques as an example. Uh, I think we still need to think about, you know, it's, it can be a bit of a pain to have to put a monitor on your wrist every night 
uh, to monitor your sleep and to remember to do that every single night. And, uh, you know, if you're traveling, you know, you might forget it and leave it at home. And you know, these are these are all very practical considerations that we um, need to keep at the forefront of our minds and try to um, perhaps smooth that path or at least keep it in the front of our minds when we're organizing to implement a, some sort of wearable solution into sport. Mm-hmm. So just taking just taking GPS for an example, with with more kind of um, affordable units coming on the market, uh, and people taking them up more probably, even though they're maybe um, focused on a kind of consumer unit, people are taking them on as um, as as team units for for football clubs, whether it be academies or or first teams. So with that with that said what what would be the process in making sure that obviously people are making decisions like we've said off these um off these pieces of technology with, with with gps what would be the process of making sure that that data that it's giving me or you is actually usable and you know uh, available to make decisions from what would be that process to to make sure that's happening yeah sure so i mean there are some some great examples of uh gps validation that really could be um, uh, mimicked in a, in a lot of ways if if people wanted to internally validate for themselves or even as research projects uh, some of these consumer units for um, movement monitoring. Uh, Aaron Coots um, did a lot of great work around this uh, sort of in the late 2000s, so t- around 2010, um, give or take a few years. Uh, and um, the process that, that Aaron and his uh, colleagues followed uh, I think is a, is a really sound one that can be adapted um, as needed, which is uh, to develop movement circuits that mimic the demands of uh, whatever sport you, you're wanting to monitor. And then uh, simply having people wear multiple devices at the same time while doing the same circuit and looking at the um, the the accuracy of those two devices, the, the comparative accuracy and, um, and reliability. And I think also an important thing is to... Uh, for people to understand that these sensors uh, and, and wearable devices do have a range of error. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of consumer bi- devices will present uh, a single number to represent what you've done in that session. Uh, you might get a reading that says, yep, you've run 5Ks today. But the truth of it is that every sensor has some amount of error, even if it's a, a minute amount. And uh, I think we need to be um, understanding of the fact that uh, even the best devices do have a plus or minus. It's it's five k's plus or minus a certain amount, and that might be five meters, or it could be fifty centimeters, or five centimeters. But there is still error, and I think when we can uh, understand that, then we will come to a more uh, sensible and sensitive use of uh, sensor technologies and the data that they um, provide us. And that I think then um, allows us to make better decisions uh, with confidence or perhaps without confidence. Because if we're getting a device that says, hey, you run 5Ks today, plus or minus 2Ks, then you know we know that that kind of device is not giving us um, very useful information. Um, but if we come to the understanding that, hey, it's 5Ks plus or minus 5 centimetres, then that's you know, perhaps an er- amount of error that we can live with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that in, in um, terms of establishing whether consumer devices are appropriate for monitoring um, athletic performance, uh, it, it does come down to understanding the measurement properties of those devices, but also knowing um, how much error are you willing to live with and what you might be able to do to minimize that error as well? Is it a technical thing 
Is it something that is inherent to the sensor? Uh, can you improve the way that you, um, you know, start all the devices at the same time, perhaps? Or can you change training v venues to have um, a, a greater uh, access to satellites um, compared to covered areas? And, and all these 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 small things add up to improve the performance of um, even consumer le level devices, which are becoming not just increasingly available and affordable, but they are increasingly accurate. It's just that uh, you do need to go through the process of establishing that um, because the pace of change is so fast that uh, the, the the research evidence to um, to support these devices and their accuracy and reliability uh, does tend to lag behind the actual advancements in uh, hardware and software. Uh -huh. Cool. Very interesting. Well, I don't want to uh, I don't want to take too much of your time up, but do you just want to give us um well just let us know where people can keep up to date with with what you've going on and most importantly the sketches where can people get to see the sketches? Sure. <laughs> um, so, Do a bit uh, of stalking of their own. <laughs> <It doesn't> do <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> the easiest place is really uh, my website, uh, which is www.jackietran.com. So that's J A C Q U I E. T R A N dot com. Um, so that's a that's a central point for um, all the places I uh, exist on um, in the internet uh, sense. All the different platforms and uh, different networks um, that I that I uh, have a presence on. So um, that's probably the best place. But uh, you can also look at my blog. Um, that's phdblog.jackytran.com. dot uh, com, and uh, that's where you can find my sketch notes. There's a link up the top, um, so you can uh, easily navigate to that. Um, or you can also tweet me. So my uh, handle is Jackie Tran as well, same spelling as my website. Um, and uh, feel free to tweet me anytime and, uh, and always happy to chat and engage with people. But uh, I always do find it funny that uh, as a sports scientist, I, I, I get asked so much about my sketch notes. So who knew that uh, <laughs> yeah, I could find, uh, find my way into an illustration career through sports science? Hey, it's work for the people. Maybe not yeah, yeah, illustrations, but infographics and things like that. Yeah, that's right. No, it's uh, it's a it's a lot of fun, and it's a part of my job that uh, I never envisaged that would be part of my job, but but I really enjoy it. And it adds, um, adds a lot of variety, and I'm always happy for people to to ask questions or if they want to send sketch notes that they've done, then that's that's even better. Um, oh, nice. I love seeing people engage in, engage in it as well. Cool. Well, um, thanks again for your time. And uh, really appreciate you uh, you coming on. So um, yeah, we'll we'll keep we'll keep in touch, and uh, we'll Great. speak soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Jackie. See you later. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode seventy four of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Jackie. So as I mentioned in the intro, I mentioned a couple of times throughout the episode. If you want to find out anything about anything more about Jackie, her research, just her interest, just or just her in person get over to jackietran.com so that's j-a-c-q-u-i-n-t-r-a-n.com uh, as i mentioned actually as i put out on twitter a couple of days ago uh, the last 30 days have been really really good for the podcast obviously nothing to do with me um, and solely to do with the great guests that have been on so we've had just under 20,000 downloads uh, in the last 30 days which is superb so thank you very much for all the support Keep the ratings and reviews coming on iTunes. Uh, they're all re really appreciated. Um, some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and months. Um, and I will speak to you in episode 75. <laughs>